Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, bringing to you the June 2018 meeting of the Whitechapel Society 1888, with its guest speaker, Louis Burke, a photographer whose work has been published in several books, including Secret Whitechapel, Whitechapel in 50 Buildings, and East End Jewish Cemeteries. His website, louisburke.com, also features a wide selection of his photography, and an online gallery entitled Whitechapel Live, in which he pulls photographs from the past 15 years of his work in Whitechapel and Spitalfields. Louis Burke has agreed to offer to our listeners a selection of photographs from his presentation, and they are available to download as a PDF accompanying this talk on the podcast's homepage on casebook.org, and I encourage everyone to check those out. So without further ado, let's turn it over to Frog Moody in the Chamberlain Hotel in the East End of London, introducing Louis Burke. Well, I'm delighted to be the one who's got to introduce Louis Burke tonight, because Louis told me a few interesting things I didn't even realise, I've forgotten about them, about when the Whitechapel Society first formed, you were one of the first, I was one of the first people that spoke to. Yeah. And Louis informs me also that I gave him a lot of advice on... Self-publishing, yeah. which is remarkable because I can't even read. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've made a few notes here. So, Louis, photographer and a former secondary teacher, uh, is Louis. Apart from publishing several books of photography, Louis has also had his work displayed in exhibitions. And a few of his books are uh, Walk to Work from the City to Whitechapel, Whitechapel in 50 Buildings, which I've actually got that one. It's a really good book now. East End Jewish Cemeteries and Secret Whitechapel. Is that about Freemasonry? Yep. Is it, it is about Freemasonry, isn't it? Uh, no, sir, it's not. No, sir. Alright. <laughs> <laughs> funny enough, I actually, um, there's a really good bookshop in um, Brick Lane, East Side Books, I think it's called. Yeah. And I went in there, it's a, it's a fantastic, I, if you get a chance to go in there, it's a brilliant shop. If you want books on the East End, go in there. And there's a book in there called the best 100 London photographers. And Louis, you can make it too, you? Without further ado, I'm going to hand you over now to a big hand for Louis Book. Thank you. Um, I have to say, when I uh, was emailing Sue earlier in the week, I, I mentioned the fact that we happened to walk into any secondary school and take a year nine class after a wet lunchtime. But speaking to erudite members of uh, Whitechapel Society uh, like this really terrifies me more than that would do. Because I know there are people here who know considerably more about East End history than I do. Um, my, my, my journey um, is one as a photographer. And, and along the way, I've been very fortunate to pick up uh, a lot about East End history, about discussing it with Frog. Um, just before we started, the fact that as I photographed more and more, one of the things that I couldn't escape from was the story of the Whitechapel murders. I mean, it, it just came up again and again in the subjects that I was photographing, which is how I got involved with the society. I can also say, if you can't hear me, do say speak up. I know I tend to uh, sometimes go down in voice. So I, I called this talk... Um, um, Photographic journeys through a fragile hinterland, and I'll explain that terminology, um, or why I actually call it that, um, in a few minutes. Um, and my journey began 
in 2004, when I took up a teaching post in Brady Street, uh, in a school that was actually built on the old Brady Street buildings, um, uh, which had been there previously. And um, I, when I started teaching, uh, I re-engaged with my creative side and I started photographing a lot more. It was one, my wife who suggested one day that in order to be able to photograph more, um, I should walk in the mornings, um, get off the tube a couple of stops earlier, or get off the bus a couple of stops earlier, and walk to Whitechapel. And that, I, did that for, I did that over a long period, over, over about a five-year period, documenting buildings, taking photographs, um, and that yielded my first book, which was self-published, called Walk to Work um, from City to Whitechapel. I started in three different locations. I would start at Liverpool Street, uh, sometimes Aldgate, sometimes I'd start at um, the Silicon Roundabout over at uh, Great Eastern Street, and then just walk through uh, Whitechapel. And um, as a photographer, one of the things that I began to notice was how serene and tranquil uh, Whitechapel is very early in the morning. I'd be journeying at about 7 o'clock in the morning, sometimes 7.30. Um, and I tend to describe myself as a real street photographer in that I actually photograph streets, but I don't really photograph people in streets. And street photography is not about photographing people in streets. I actually prefer to photograph streets. And without sounding pretentious, that makes me more of a landscape photographer. Um, this is one of my favorite views. Um, I love looking down um, Wentworth Street. This is, I know this is September. September is a particularly good time of the year to photograph because uh, the sun seems to creep around that corner a bit like a sundial and slowly illuminate the buildings. Um, and uh, that's, I think, some of the beauty of, of walking through a white channel. But I, I came to realize it was a very fragile area. It was changing even as I was walking back in 2004. And that's where, that's where the phrase fragile hinterland began to um, occur to me as I walked around the photographing. Um, as I photographed more and more, I then began to get very interested in the history of the buildings. The buildings revealed things to me, which I actually had picked up from popular history, from my studies when I was a student. I took quite a few history courses, um, and, and some of particularly political history. And of course, Whitechapel intersects with 19th and 20th century political history so uh, strongly. Um, I've called this particular uh, photograph three ages of architecture because you've got the East End Dwelling uh, Company um, building in the front there now called Merchant House. And then you've got the um, high rise of the uh, Petticoat Lane estate behind it. And then behind that you've got Norman Foster's, I think, brilliant piece of architecture. I, I like the uh, 30s and their acts very much indeed. But it was really finding out more about Merchant House um, and its, its history and its association with um, Henrietta and Samuel Barnett and Octavia Hill that drove me towards finding out more about uh, the whole story of uh, the Whitechapel murders and Trent Ripper. Because, of course, um, Henrietta and Samuel Barnett, this was one of their first ventures, uh, Merchant, uh, one, uh, Wentworth Buildings and Brunswick Buildings, uh, opposite in uh, Gorsley Street. Um, and they were really quite pioneering in the idea of building 
artisan dwellings. Um, there were a number of acts that had been passed in the 1870s to allow uh, metropolitan areas to clear land and then sell it quite cheaply to philanthropists who would build um, properties like this. Um, and of course, Brunswick building, as far as I'm aware, please correct me if I'm wrong, is, is associated with the um, double event in uh, the Whitechapel murder uh, story. Not in the picture here, but it was through really thinking a bit more about the buildings and I've been looking at them, not just photographing them, I became more and more interested in the history of what it was that I was actually photographing. Um, this is not necessarily historically significant, but it is significant in one way, which is this was taken in 2008, looking along Toynbee Street. Um, and of course, there's that fabulous view you see uh, Nicholas Hawkes or Christchurch spire at the distance. I always, I thought this was quite a poignant photograph in some ways. You've got the Lahore restaurant, which is obviously closed down, but echoes back to the very early, uh, not the earliest Bangladeshian community in the 70s and 80s. I was always quite amused by the halal fish and chips side as well, which I think is kind of interesting on the wall. Um, what's fascinating about that photograph is it's still undeveloped, and I do find that very strange. I don't know what it is about Toynbee Street that has been torn up and uh, turned into apartments, but that view is pretty much the same today as it was um, 10 years ago. Um, this is um, college buildings, and again, I was very attracted to um, this particular building, largely because of its, its Gothic um, architectural style, although there's a sort of intersection there with arts and crafts as well. I think it's, I think, uh, it's a frontage which has really two types of styles incorporated into it. Um, you can see what it looks like today on the right. Um, it's actually being facaded for the second time in its life. Um, it was facaded when the Tormby estate was expanded in the, I think it was the 70s or 80s. Um, and now it's being facaded again. It looks rather miserable just always over there. It's going to be put together in a massive glass and steel structure, uh, which will be um, actually largely private apartments. Um, this, this building is, is also interesting from another point of view, which is when the Barnett started, obviously they wanted, I suppose they wanted to get the Know, biggest bang for their buck as they could in terms of um, housing for uh, the plan to improve um, living conditions, provide safe and secure living conditions. But um, it said that Samuel Barnett uh, really believed in also making the buildings attractive, but that seemed to be counter to the to his fellow trustees who, who didn't think that um, making buildings attractive was that important. But he felt that if, if uh, the surroundings were attractive, and people would respect the property for more. And uh, this uh, college building is a good example of um, his intention to make the building look good as well as fulfil its purpose. It was built. It was the architect of this uh, was Elijah J. Hull, um, and he also uh, was the architect for um, Toynbee Hall. Now, when I was uh, writing. Um, White Chapel 50 Buildings, um, Rachel and I, Rachel Kolsky, my co-author, and I sat down and listed all the buildings that we wanted to include, and actually our lists, we did separately and then we combined them. Our lists were very similar. 
Uh, in fact, there are only about one or two buildings which were, were uh, dissimilar between the two lists, which is very good. We both said we wanted to do Torrenby Hall. Uh, I went down to Torrenby Hall and I photographed it. This, this is my photograph. And this story is, I put it in the category of sometimes you just get lucky. Um, I went down and photographed it. One of, one of the ways I work is I photograph the same thing again and again. I'm a bit obsessive about it, actually. Um, and the reason why I do it again and again is that I like to see what it looks like under different lighting conditions, different seasons, different times of the day. So went down, photographed it, got a fairly decent photograph. I mean, this is the photograph of the book. Went back to photograph it, and they had started the redevelopment. So it was completely covered uh, with this you know, blue hoarding, big tall blue hoarding. Couldn't look at the building, couldn't take any more photographs. And I was standing around looking forlorn, and the sort of the door opens in the uh, hoarding, and a guy comes out, he looks at me, he says, uh, Hello, can I help you? I said, Well, uh, you can't really, because it's too late. I wanted to photograph the building. And he said, Well, would you like to see inside it? which is the equivalent of asking that question about bears and woods. And I said, yes, of course, I definitely would like to see inside it. So he took me through the hoarding, took me inside, and then he just said, well, take your time, uh, and wandered off. Left me with the camera and everything. Now, I'd been inside Toby Hall once before, because I'd, I'd been there for a presentation when I was a teacher, so our kids had won awards, and the local education business partnership had said, come down, we'll do it at, at Toby Hall. But I hadn't had the chance to go and look at the camera. It was in a bit of a forlorn state, unfortunately, um, and the reason why it's been refurbished is that the roof had fell. Um, and um, so this is the main entrance, which you know, is a beautiful piece of wood paneling, uh, almost uh, church-like in, in, in the doors, into the main room. Um, sadly, this is what the main room looked like. It seemed actually quite a wash at the time. Um, the ceiling had failed, there was quite a lot of water um, had come through. But again, a really unique opportunity to get in and see a building before it was refurbished in a, in a completely empty state. Um, the wood panelling is very beautiful. I don't know what wood it is. I'm assuming it's mahogany or something. It looks like it is. Um, and then this is the other main hall. I suspect that's probably not the original um, decoration. Uh, it's actually appalling and hopefully they will have that back to what the original was. Um, and uh, I don't think that's the original floor either. That looks like the 1960s parquet floor. Um, one of the things I found fascinating was um, the, the tree of life theme is carried on throughout the building. This is actually the banisters. Now, unfortunately, almost every single uh, one of these has been damaged. There was only one I could photograph which was not damaged. And I hope they'll put those back in when they, when they remake the banisters. But it's a very distinctive. Uh, symbol you see on the top And then there were these fantastic brass plaques. You might not be able to read it from here, but it says, the friends of T.S. Widowson um, have given these doors, thankful for the example of his meek and manly service. Yeah, that's a fantastic memorial. Uh, and there are a number of these uh, dotted throughout the whole building. And again, one assumes that um, as the developers are paying for a complete refurbishment of the hall, it will be, you know, bought back and then be kept. 1897. Now, Tybee Hall is associated with many famous people, but I suppose the two most fam famous are uh, Clement Attlee 
Uh, Tony Hall set up his university settlement, I don't know if people know this, but it was basically <coughs> by the Barnetts, the idea being if they brought in new university students from Oxbridge and Cambridge, or Oxford and Cambridge, then they could basically uh, use, their, uh, use their skills to provide training and activities for uh, people in the East End and improve their uh, knowledge and improve their skills. Um, and uh, instead, Toynbee Hall was named after Arnold Toynbee, who was quite a pioneer um, economist. Uh, he was a man who is credited uh, with uh, coining the phrase the Industrial Revolution. He had some very radical economic ideas on it. He died young. He was a friend of um, the Barnetts, and that's why they named Toynbee Hall after him. Attlee House has now been torn down, which is a real shame. I mean, Clement Attlee, we all know, was the uh, Labour Prime Minister after the, uh, the Second World War and uh, the linchpin in, in creation of the welfare state. He was an MP for Limehouse for 30 years um, and, and he worked in Tony Hall as a student. The other person who, that's associated with Tony Hall, again, this is a bit more sensational, is of course John Rafila, who, uh, after his fall from grace in, in the Christian Kiva affair, uh, ended up uh, volunteering initially at. Um, Toynbee Hall. In fact, his first job was washing dishes. Quite a fall from grace from the Minister of War to uh, volunteer. And he worked there for the rest of his life and was very much loved by the community from, from the articles I've read about him. Uh, he was known affectionately to everybody as Jack. This building, Profumo House, was opened in 2003 when he was still alive um, by uh, John Major. He actually came down and dedicated the building. I haven't looked because I haven't been able to get into that area. Um, Actually, the cafe is still open at the moment, I believe. I, I assume they're going to tear this down, which I think is a real shame, I think. It's gone. Uh, sorry? It's gone. My friend used to live in it. It's oh, gone. it's actually gone. Okay, so that's a real shame. Um, very interestingly as well, I, I found an article, a Telegraph article written at the time um, of the dedication of the building. I didn't know his father, um, uh, Baron Profumo, uh, actually, I think, opened or paid for or founded the People's Palace in Martin so there was a family association with the East End, which is kind of interesting. Anyway, I think it's, I think it's, I think that's a poignant, that photograph appealed to me because it is somewhat poignant that there is his name, and unfortunately, probably not there before longer. Um, right, I'm going to sort of continue my journey towards Whitechapel. Um, I'm not going to say much about Christchurch. Um, all the Baltimore churches, to me, are just fantastic edifices. Uh, I photographed this for, actually, I photographed two of them for. Uh, Whitechapel and 50 buildings, this one has St George's in the East. I've been very lucky actually to get onto to the roof of um, St George's Hoburn, I can't remember what it's called. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've actually been able to get on the roof, I can't remember what it's called. Yeah, it's really great. Yeah, I've been able to get onto the roof and actually photograph the uh, unicorns and the uh, statue at the top, which is really interesting, close up, it's a beautiful piece of but this, about, uh, I won't bore you with all the stories and the associations with Jack London and all that kind of stuff. The one thing I will say is, is two things about this photograph. Again, this is about photographing very early in the morning. It's about 7.30 on a Sunday in April. In fact, you can see the trees don't have any leaves on them. It's a great time of year. You get that brittle, brilliant, early sunlight which sort of promises that summer is you know, going to come along and these beautiful long shadows at the same time. Um, which are very, very useful for photography. 
This was actually a grab shot. I'd actually been photographing Providence Road around the corner. Um, and as I was walking back, I turned around and saw the shot and just photographed it as best I could. But it turned out to be really, really good. The one fact you might not know about uh, Nicholas Hawksmore, and I, I learned this from a, a friend of mine who's an architect. We were actually walking past him one day. And he said to me, actually, Louis Hawksmore is sometimes said to be one of the inspirations behind Art Deco, which is kind of interesting. Um, but continuing up Commercial Street, this is actually, I'm quite proud of this photograph. This is the Godfrey Phillips factory, um, originally called Cambridge House, but now called Exchange House. Now, um, again, I wanted to put this building in because it's a very unusual example of um, what's good art deco building, which I think is an interesting architectural style. But it's a good example of Fayon's uh, glazed tiling or building. And the fact that it survived is amazing because when I looked into it, it doesn't have a listing. I assumed it would be grade two listed, but in fact I can't find it on the list on the <coughs> The pub at the end is grade two listed, which I find really bizarre, but the building is not. Um, and um, it was, uh, as I say, it was built for Godfrey Phillips. They were cigarette manufacturers, you probably know, um, uh, in, in 1935. But again, I had to really get up early on a Sunday morning to try and get commercial street without any traffic in it, because I really wanted to show the beauty of the building. It's, it's a beautiful piece of architecture, uh, which I don't think is appreciated enough, truth be known. You can just see in the corner on the left-hand side there, the other building, which is really very interesting in, um, interesting in terms of its history and its architecture, which is um, the original Peabody building. Now, as far as I understand it, this is the first Peabody building built from the um, fund that he created to create artisan dwellings for the industrial classes. Um, and um, interestingly enough as well, it was built with commercial premises in it. So there are shops at street level which are still operating today. Um, but um, it was built in uh, 1864, I think. Um, and um, again, I think it's a fantastic piece of architecture. I think it's historically, obviously, it's historically very significant in terms of its importance. Um, and, and one of many of the philanthropic building uh, organizations that uh, built uh, property projects to the extent. A lot of people actually sometimes say it's a very plain building. I think it's actually what we would call today understated. Mm. Um, and one of the reasons why I say that is that there's, there's a sort of Dutch influence to the gables, which is really very, very pretty in its way. And I think the, I also think that the facings around the windows are very attractive, very, very, very tastefully done. And of course that great, uh, because they you know, because they were able to use uh, a triangle, a triangular plot, we've got the apex, which looks like a tower, and very cleverly has the um, uh, has what looks like a battlement on top through which the chimneys go. So I think it's, it's a fabulous building. Again, a very early start. The only way to photograph architecture. Prom was asking me before. Didn't we get annoyed with all the cars and all the people and everything? Um, yeah, if you get up really early enough, you can actually avoid the majority of that if, if you're if you're really. Really good. I have actually on one occasion moved somebody out of a shot at the 730 point because he's not walking back as forwards on their phone. And I said, Excuse me, could you stand there? <laughs> um, and 
he's sort of got, as I was holding my camera, he's sort of got the, got the message really Didn't have that problem. Although when I was looking at this photograph, I suddenly realized, my goodness, that's my car, and that's just <laughs> um, And in fact, the good thing about photographing down here is you can photograph till 8.30 in the morning without having to pay for money. Um, talking about cars, cars are the bane of my life. Two things that are the absolute bane of my life as a photographer are cars and street furniture, in particular signage and bus shelters. Um, it's astonishing how often uh, street highway planners will shove a bus stop right up in front of the architecturally significant building. I mean, they almost did it here, but it's just something the street. But sometimes cars do actually work for you. This is um, outside of Mark Gerkin's house in Elder Street. And you may, uh, if you go down there, you'll see this car every single, every single all the time. Um, so where cars look interesting, I have tried to incorporate them into the photograph. And the people here of a certain age who I'm sure have affection for the Morris 1000 or Morris 1. Um, it's a fabulous car. Um, and it just worked really well with that, uh, that particular photograph. So I didn't, I actually built it into the photograph rather than taking it out of it. Same thing here uh, with Donovan Brothers. I, mean, I was just walking past it and this not quite a 1960s Mini, but um, you know, a Mini giving you that flavour sort of way. <laughs> trying to work out how I can stand it. I just love the way the Mini sort of protrudes into the photograph and gives it that 1960s uh, feel. Um, Donovan Brothers, of course, quite important um, business. Uh, they had shops at all the major markets providing packaging. Interesting example of the, of the importance of the Irish community in Whitechapel, which is not always um, projected enough in, in the history. Um, they still exist, apparently they have a factory down in Kent, they no longer obviously operate markets, because all the markets have pretty much disappeared or gone to places outside of London. Um, but that was at the Lucky Five, it was just a, a great shop, which I just managed to get. Um, this is uh, Fournier Street. And again, I just use the car to really sort of say something about the French influence, the Huguenot influence, it being a, a Citroen, uh, a old Citroen uh, vehicle. This is from 2009. You can tell that because the hotel hasn't been built where uh, Bangor City was. Uh, I actually taught the summer, I think, of one of the owners of Bangor City in my school. Um, and actually, you can see as far as uh, Link's Yard with the, um, with the chimney and um, Pauline House in the distance. But I just like the way the car is sort of just related back to. You can't have an echo. Maybe you can have an echo forward, I don't know. Um, but there is the, there are the Huguenot Weaver's houses and the Huguenot Church at the end, and then there's the car as well. So sometimes cars can work for photographers, but I have to say, most of the time, I spend, you know, tear my hair out and spend my time trying to work out how I can get somewhere at a really early time so I have absolutely no cars. To Sure. I, I just threw this in because um, they, are, they are just so distinctive. Um, I don't, I'm not a paparazzi, I don't, actually don't like taking photographs of people, but um, Gilbert and George, just, they're just so distinctive. Um, I just couldn't resist. I was actually walking down the street and they came out of their house and walked down the street. Actually, um, they're very friendly people because they do the cover thumbs in photograph and they said to me, Good morning, you know, in a photographic way. Not in Fournier Street, actually, but they're a good way. In case you think I hang outside <laughs> um, So, right, I want to talk about this photograph. Um, 
this always used to make me smart each time I walked down no dying next to a toilet. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I, I then came across a really revealing story. Uh, I mean, these are the, the public toilets um, in Petticoat Lane. Uh, not, they were built in 1900, just you know, on the cusp of the Victorian Edwardian era. Um, and uh, I came across a leaflet that was published by Town and its Council a few years back. Um, written by Stephen Burkhoff, who himself is actually a very good photographer. He's published a great book of his East End photographs from the 1960s. And he related a story about this. He said that this was known locally as the Parliament of Petticoat Lane. And the reason for it was that the, the, the street traders, particularly predominantly Jewish street traders, would convene on the toilets for obvious reasons. And then they would come out and they'd start a discussion about the events of the day. And there's a very famous expression uh, two Jews, three of Indians. And you can imagine these guys just getting into it with each other, you know, sh you know, shouting at each other and getting really worked up, really, really fantastic. And I just love the story. I mean, you know, the fact that, that Burkhoff was there contemporary at the time of observing this, I think it's really incredible. As a teacher, I've never been able to work out why they needed to punctuate the sermon. Why there was a full sermon. I don't know whether it's trying to say, gentlemen, not dogs, carts, horses, dogs, only gentlemen. I don't know why they're saying that. Lovely piece of raw iron, beautiful, mm. you know, you don't see this. Of course, um, I got to know uh, the guy who ran the market, I don't think he still does, and I also got to know the owner of Kossoff's around the corner, because I've never just going into Kossoff's and buying some bagels in the morning on the way to school. And they were being used as um, storage for the, for the uh, market. But apparently there was some kind of EU directive or regulation which would have required enormous amounts of expense to upgrade the toilets, so towns decided to close them down. I don't think they filled them in yet, but that's what they were saying they were going to do. Now we talk about the fragile hinterland. This, this, is, where, this is where I first ever had thought, fragile hinterland, because you know, I'm walking up and down the street, I, I finished my book, I hadn't been there for maybe a few months, and suddenly this thing shot up at the end of Labour Street this building, and it really shocked me, you know, in terms of the size of it compared to the surroundings. It's an enormous building, it's what it looks like, than what it looked like when it was finished. Enormous building. Um, now this is, as I understand it, key worker housing, so it's quite important. But in terms of its position, and its uh, position in the landscape, uh, it's actually a very attractive building, where anywhere were not there, but this is how Whitechapel has been transformed. This is where I first began to think, wow, you know, this is not going to be how it looks in five years' time, ten years' time. It's going to really change. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's astonishing how many times I give talks to people who live in Whitechapel and they've actually never seen this. And they say, where is that? <laughs> um, this is the other side, of, the other side of Commercial Street. This is the um, uh, industrial dwelling um, called, uh, company arch uh, put up in uh, in uh, oh, hold on. I don't know. 1886, I think. Yeah. Um, founded by uh, Nathan Lord Rothschild, he was the first Jewish um, peer. He'd been, I think, he'd been the first Jewish MP, but he became the first Jewish peer. He started the business organization, I should say, really, um, as a way of building 
multi-tenant properties. Uh, and in fact, this was the entrance to Charlotte building named after his mother. Um, but Lord Rothschild was quite uh, an amazing benefactor, a philanthropist actually. Not only did he found this company, uh, he gave to many different causes. He gave, for example, he spent a lot of money on, he gave a lot of money to church spire funds. Uh, there's a story on the day of his death, um, the church bells hung down the south coast of Rugby in his honor, memorial. I like to tell people sometimes, when I have the right audience, he was actually one of the founding directors of the East London Mosque, uh, which is kind of interesting. Uh, because, of course, at that point, uh, it, you know, in those days, the Jewish community had so this today. The early Muslim community had a lot in common. Uh, and he became a trustee and he, he helped uh, found that mosque. Um, as I say, this led through to sh uh, Charlotte buildings. Uh, we're going to jump forward because um, this is one of the last um, industrial dwelling company buildings that was created. This is McCarter House, uh, which I think dates from about 1905. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful building. I mean, it's a shame people can't build like this today. I suppose it's just not economic. Um, arts and crafts style, um, beautiful uh, London red brick, shot through with um, Portland Stone courses, um, a lovely, lovely building. Next door to it here is actually the Brady Street uh, Jewish Cemetery, uh, which was the subject of one of my books. Um, and um, it's kind of interesting because, in fact, his mother and father are uh, buried uh, in that cemetery as well. But that is that was one of the last buildings. The IDS, as it became, still exists. They still run that building. It's now completely secular, non-denominational. Uh, and they still own, uh, I think they still own Stepney uh, dwellings and a few others around the area as well. Fabulous building. That's actually my school next door here. Right, talk for about 14 years. Um, this, is, uh, this is Brick Lane in 2009. Um, and um, sorry to jump about a bit, but it's 2009 outside uh, what had become then the Jeanne Magie. Um, but had started as a Huguenot church, and then became a Methodist chapel, and then became uh, the Great Brick Lane, Brick Lane Great Synagogue. Um, and I just happened to, this was actually a coincidence, I wasn't necessarily going down there to photograph it, but it was actually the day they were lifting the new minaret into place. This is the long shot. This is actually one of the first photographs I ever sold to a publication. This, I got. Uh, emailed by the Financial Times, they found this in my uh, on my website. I wanted to use it in an article about how churches are being transformed for other uses. And of course, this is the classic story, the story of the Huguenot Chapel here. Uh, I was actually also quite proud of this because this is filmed on digital. Um, it's interesting yeah. selling <coughs> selling a film frame to a, a, a newspaper publication at that time. Um, and this was, this is actually, this got reproduced in um, the big issue in Taiwan. Um, kind of interesting. They, they asked, I actually donated this photograph, I've been charged for it, obviously. Um, this is what Brickland was like. Unfortunately, I would say today, one of the things I tend to do, there are two crossings I camp out at. One of them is this, the other is Quaker Street and um, Brickland. And I just sit there and I just photograph. I get there at like 7 o'clock in the morning, I just 
stand there and photograph as things go by. You can't really do that here at Henry Street any longer. The, the amount of traffic now is just so enormous that it's not as fun as it was. Whereas in the old days, you know, one or two people would go by and catch this lady cycling to work. It's now cars and it's just. But further up, it's Clayton Street, and, uh, sorry, it's uh, Quaker Street, it's actually still quite, quite quiet. Um, a lot of people, again, don't necessarily ever see this. This is uh, the water collector on Christchurch Primary School. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't know if anybody here has come across uh, a guy called Lawrence Regal. He used to run a, a website. Uh, I can't remember what it was called, it's still up there. Lawrence was a rabbi who uh, had a congregation in East London. And he got into the website building and built a fantastic website um, about uh, East End because lots of tours through it's what we're finding. And he and I got into discussion about this because um, I actually, actually uh, got in touch with him and said to him, you know, what's the story behind this? Now, the urban myth, or the, the story behind it, is it a myth I don't know, is that um, the um, teachers in the school, this is around about 1880, um, because there were so many Jewish children, decided to buy this water collector to make them feel more at home. Because of course, this has the Star of David on it, which is a very important symbol in, in the Jewish religion. Um, Lawrence said, no, 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 that's, it's just a coincidence. They used to decorate these things with all sorts of things, and they just managed to buy them online, you know, which is kind of interesting. But if you want to see it, if you haven't ever seen it, if you look at Christchurch School, look to the right-hand side, look right up at the roof, you'll actually see it. And it's a nice little story. What is true is that some of the teachers did actually learn Yiddish in order to be able to talk um, to their children, who, who obviously had come from Eastern Europe and Yiddish was their only language. I have to say, when I was a teacher, I picked up a little bit of Bengali, not a lot, because <laughs> times change. Particularly in the swear words, actually. <laughs> um, maybe you had to know whether or not they were actually swearing at you. Um, this is another favourite spot. I've wandered through these many, many, I'm sure a lot of us have wandered through these many times, Penny Street Arch. I don't quite know why it's called the Penny Street Arch, it's on sort of Bithry Hill, but it's, um, it's a beautiful spot. And I love the way the light channels you towards St. Anne's in the distance. It, it, there's something about that. It's almost like a picture frame around St. Anne's at certain times of the year. I don't do a lot of black and white photography, but this particular, this was a, the right treatment for it. I also got the feeling that the guys dossing in the arch weren't actually uh, necessarily homeless. I think actually they were either backpackers who hadn't found somewhere to go for the night, or they might be Eastern European workers, you know, uh, construction workers, because they were very, they were very comfortable. Um, and I normally don't photograph people in this kind of situation. I think it's exploitative. But in this particular occasion, it just there was just a warmth about the photograph that I thought was worth taking. Um, again, St. Anne's is another very important part of the Irish community um, in Whitechapel in the East End. Um, and uh, it's actually very lovely to photograph the fact it's included in um, Whitechapel and 50 buildings. Uh, the door is particularly uh, intricate for with the end. Um, of course, when you go through Penley Street Arch now, oh, one of the other things is I was very fortunate. I got in touch with the agents of Emmanuel Litvinov because in, in Journey Through a Small Planet, uh, Litvinov really writes lyrically a beautiful uh, anecdote about walking through this arch late at night, and they very kindly allowed us to reproduce that, that two or three paragraphs talking about the Pedley Street Arch and how, not so much grim, but all the things that are going on in as he walks home one night, uh, escorting a young woman home to Whitechapel. 
Nowadays, it's, I mean, it's been in lock, stock, and two smoking barrels, uh, children, men. Um, in Luther, uh, his, his uh, sidekick, T.S. Ripley, gets eviscerated at the end of the shotgun in one of the episodes. And he's, he's always, in fact, my wife and I often spend a lot of time looking at the television and saying, oh, look, Benny Street Art. Because um, it comes up so often now. You often see it in fashion shoots. I've been down there at fashion shoots have been going on. I've been there and they've been doing music videos. It's a great location for that sort of thing. Um, nearby, and I suppose this is, this is a great way to use the fragile hinterland, if you like, is the um, Spitalfields Farm, which has been going since 1978. And um, I was very fortunate to be able to go down and photograph there and meet with a remarkable woman, uh, Le Hussein, who founded uh, the Coriander Club um, back in the 90s. She, was, uh, she came over from Bengal, Bangladesh, and uh, wanted to grow the, the kind of vegetables that she used to grow at home, um, and found space at the city farm to do that. And it's actually become quite, quite a big operation. Um, I didn't know this, but Rachel, my co-author, is a big fan of um, Cesar Robson, I think his name is, who does all these bottom-top things. And he actually did the design of uh, the entrance there that has Lutheran's name in, uh, in, uh, as, a, as a recognition of her efforts. Um, these are the code of gourds that she grows in the polytunnels. They all grow, I mean, not she, but the group that grows there. But one thing she was very insistent on is that I photograph her lab lab beans, which are apparently a very big thing in Bangladesh. And again, what I wanted to do is I wanted to bring in um, the fragility, the the, uh, you know, the, the new uh, um, overground parcel just nearby. But I mean, this is actually a very positive story because hopefully it brings people into uh, Chai Street. Hopefully, some of them will you know, go down to the farm and actually enjoy. Um, one of the things I do like to do is, particularly when I'm showing photographs, is I do like to challenge people's perceptions of Whitechapel. Because we know that it's not today the, the, the grim, uh, violent uh, uh, milieu of you know, the 1880s any longer. But in fact, actually, in places it wasn't back then. And, and this is one example of the challenge, challenging people's perceptions. Um, this is almost a sort of country scene to some extent. It wasn't for the pavement and the, uh, the lampposts. This is Victoria Cottages, part of a pair of cottages, um, uh, built by an impossibly named organisation um, called, I only know it as Maydak. I can't ever remember every single letter that it stands for. Um, it was um, the, the two apartments, that's why there are two doors. I searched everywhere in my archive, I know I have a photograph of the two doors with milk bottles that came from, um, from the, the dairy guy who he, still drives around with his float and had to look milk bottles. Couldn't find anywhere I'll show it to you tonight, couldn't find anywhere. Um, but it's just, again, a way of saying to people, because in fact, when I used to say to people, um, I used to get the reaction, when I said to people I was a secondary school teacher, you used to get this reaction, which was you know, sucking in the teeth. And then when I used to say, oh, I work in Whitechapel, it was like they were trying to self-inflate. You know, <laughs> but, you know, obviously, those of us who, who 
live and work in Whitechapel, although it's, uh, it's not as grim as the folklore um, uh, portrays, and indeed as the TV portrays in, in many ways. So I love showing people this photograph. Another photograph um, uh, further down Bellevue Terrace as well. It's also a beautiful country terrace uh, stuck in the middle of Whitechapel. It's absolutely fabulous. Just around the corner from here is a guy who has an incredible garden that I photographed as well. Just in his front garden, just incredible flowers, vegetables, and things. Um, this is something people don't often see. Um, this is um, the top of the uh, Deal Street School, now later renamed the Captain Montefiore School in Hanbury Street. I know it says Deal Street, but it's on the corner of Deal Street and Hanbury Street. And I mean, I noticed this very early on, this incredible freeze. Actually, it's not just an incredible freeze, but the brickwork is unbelievable as well for a school board, I mean, for, 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 for a school. I mean, those of us who've taught in schools and taught in certain types of schools, we'd be lucky to have, have workmanship as good as that in a school. You know? Obviously, part of the wave of the schools following the Education Acts, and, and Whitechapel had a lot of schools because there was a massive influx in terms of the population. But the fact that they went so far as to put in not just a freeze, but a triangular freeze into the apex of the building. Um, Light is my glory apparently is the, um, is the uh, <coughs> phrase of the, uh, the motto of the school board in London. It's a very, very beautiful thing. And if you're in Deal Street, it's, uh, sorry, Henry Street, it is well worth looking at. It's a very beautiful piece of work. Um, it was renamed the Captain Montefiore School after Robert Montefiore, who was, before the First World War, vice chair of the League of the Education Committee of London County Council. He was a much liked individual. He was a barrister. Um, and he answered the call to arms. I think he was a member of a, a yeomanry, and I think he was Oxford and Bucks, but I'm not too sure. I can't remember. Um, and unfortunately, he lost his life in the Gallipoli campaign, wounded and then evacuated to Egypt and died there. And in recognition, I think perhaps uh, because of his contribution to the educational system before the First World War, they renamed the school sometime in, sometime, again, I found it difficult to establish when it was sometime after, obviously, his death, but after 1916. Um, and actually, this, I've never seen another one of these, maybe other people have, but that looks to me like some kind of boundary marker. I've never seen uh, an SPL brick like that before, which uh, I think is interesting, embedded into the wall of the school. Ah, right. Um, this is one of my uh, photographs I've seen again and again, because I love reflections. Um, and I also like talking to people about this street. I'm very fortunate to have worked with people who lived in this street before it was transformed. Um, and um, they can tell you that it was really, really a bad street to live in. I don't mean because of the community, but by the 1960s when it was knocked down, it was appalling. You know, I mean, water running down the walls, eight people to a, to a, a building, shared toilet, shared, and it was just horrible. Um, one of my colleagues moved from the left privilege, <coughs> what was this side of the street, to Davenant House, which is just in the, uh, the edge of the frame there. And, she, she literally said to me, Louis, it was like moving into a palace. Heating, indoor plumbing, electric lighting, no doubt, it was just fantastic. The reason why I like this as well is, um, for those who know, a lot of you will have seen uh, the London who uh, nobody knows, and at the end of it, of course, there's this fabulous piece of 
an old Jewish guy standing, actually probably right down there, <coughs> uh, and uh, he's singing uh, Lizzie. Oh, yeah. Sorry? Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah beautiful, actually. really is a beautiful part. And then the shot pans out, and you see Spring Walk, and you see Pauline House, uh, which is, is just fabulous, world worth feeling, the world worth looking at, actually. Uh, and it was a big surprise as well when I saw it the first time I watched it or the second time I watched it after having become familiar with the area and saw that panning shot and realised, wow. Because uh, Pauline House was built in the 1960s, you could go back in 1960 actually. You can see it pretty much from, well I can see it from Primrose Hill. Um, I haven't looked for it from Parliament Hill, but it's a very distinctive building. I will, obviously, I wanted to include some photographs of the Royal London Hospital. I mean, my first journey into Whitechapel, when I actually went for my interview for my job, you know, you come out of the station and you look up and you see this edifice, and it's just magnificent. You know, with jaw-dropping in some ways. And I wanted to show a photograph of when it was still, you know, in full use. Uh, this is 2008, you can see the new building living behind it. So many stories about Royal London Hospital, and I could speak for the next hour about it. And in fact, one of the things that I did do when I used to take my students on tours of one chapters. I spend quite a bit of time talking about uh, people like Sir Frederick Treves and Dr. Bernardo and Eva Lux in particular, a great role model for women, I forget the for, for girls and women, uh, Edith Gabell, yeah, and some of the pioneering um, doctors who work there. Um, I was very fortunate to get to the top of Trinity House, which of course is the old Derwent Street um, school board uh, building. Um, I got to know the, um, the uh, site manager of Crossrail quite well and let me up there one day because uh, they used the building to measure sound of the construction. So I was able to get a really good shot of both the old building and then behind it the new building. I love the new building. I think the new building is very, very uh, clever. Uh, I like the design. I like the colours. Again, you can see this actually from Primrose Hill and Parliament Hill, which is kind of interesting. Um, it's a very distinctive shape. And as um, somebody said to me, the uh, helipad looks like something out of the Ark Royal. It's, uh, it's an amazing building. Um, this is another thing on Whitechapel West, which people, again, when I show them a picture of this, they say, where is that? I've never seen that. It's the King Edward VII um, drinking fountain, which is actually opposite the hospital. It was in the first shot that I put up. Uh, I love, uh, it's, a, it's a fantastic piece of statuary. It's just incredible. Uh, on this side, you've got King Edward VII himself. On the other side, you've got a rosette. It's the Order of the Garter. Um, the, the fountain was funded by the uh, Jewish community, by the Jewish street traders. In context, you have to understand that it was put up in 1910, just uh, well, actually five or six years after the Aliens Act. And I don't know if you saw the really good program um, from the name of the guy. And I only had an issue Yeah, he did a really good program drawing the parallels between the Aliens Acts of the early 19th century, which were all about stopping Eastern Europeans coming into the country, and the you know obsession we have at the moment with immigration from Eastern Europe. He did a really interesting program. <coughs> but the Jewish community wanted to make sure, obviously, that they could continue to uh, evolve and people could continue to come. They wanted to show their fealty to. Uh, the monarch, and in fact, Edward VII had been a very good monarch for the Jewish community. He'd been very supportive of them. The um, the 
A statue is magnificent. I mean, on one side you have um, an angel portraying. This is portraying justice. She has the scales in her hand. On the other side, uh, it's liberty. She's got a scroll. Um, and then around the base are these four beautiful cherubs, signifying progress. We've got one with a car, one with a steamship, one with a piece of cloth, the garment trade, obviously, was very important to the Jewish community. And then one very important one, which is the aspirational one, education, books, you know, which has been key to most of the immigrant communities who come into the East End. Education is <coughs> an important drawing factor for Beautiful, beautiful statue, well worth looking at. Um, I just wanted to include this. I'll be fairly brief about this. This is Berners Street. Obviously, we all know what it's associated with. But this is actually a fabulous school. And it's a very interesting story to all particularly for teachers because this is a, one of the earliest vocational schools. It was a metropolitan training center. Um, uh, and it was designed to provide a, a pathway for students who couldn't cope in those days with what they called the three R's. Um, instead, they could take this vocational path, which is quite radical for the time, actually. I mean, really, education has only just come back to this vocational pathway for students who can't cope with conventional education. Um, beautiful design. Uh, again, lashings of Portland stone and red brick wood. Um, the reason why it resonates with me is because of its name today. As people may know, it's now called... Uh, well, that's, sorry, this is another exterior. This is... Um, it shows the entrance. Yeah. Um, but the reason why it resonates with me today is because of its, it was renamed Tommy Flowers Center. Now, Tommy Flowers is one of these people without whom most of us would not be here today. Um, he was absolutely central to the success of Fletcher Park, um, of being able to crack the really high level um, uh, German uh, encrypted traffic, traffic that was going between people like Hitler and his general. He didn't actually crack it. Um, it was done by a, a mathematician called uh, Bill Tart. But the relationship is the same as the relationship between Fleming and Fleury. Fleming discovered penicillin. It took Fleury to actually work out how to manufacture it. And Tart broke into this highly encrypted traffic. And then Tommy Fowles built a machine, which was the first computer, the first proper programmable, stored program computer to speed up speed up the actual cycles necessary to crack the encryption. Um, and then he was told to keep it secret for the rest of his life, which he basically did. Now, I got married to my wife who comes from the US. She said to me, yes, we invented the computer. <laughs> Indeed, the first people to invent the computer who could publicly acknowledge it were the US. This man almost went to his death without ever being recognized. In fact, I've always said, if they want to put somebody on the plinth in Trafalgar Square, he or Bill Touch should be on it because his work probably locked two years off the Second World War and also saved, possibly saved approximately 20 million lives just by building a computer that could crack the encryption um, of this, this, this traffic. Uh, sometimes they were reading the messages before the generals had actually got them from him and so on. Um, and in fact, this is the machine process. I did my part for this. We actually renamed the part of our school, the Flower Zone. In fact, the only other recognition that he's had is at Dollis Hill uh, GPO Research Laboratory, which is where he worked and actually developed the machine. They renamed the, the Road Flowers Drive. But uh, there needs to be more done to remember this man. It really does. Um, this, is, uh, this is the revolutionary door um, for Bourne Street. In 1907, there was uh, the Russian 
social democratic organization that I believe held uh, a London conference um, and the Bolsheviks, being the splitters that they are, decided to go off and have a day on their own. Um, and uh, there was only about 30, 40 people. But they went down to Whitechapel to Fulton <coughs> Street and they actually met in the premises just above here and went through this door. And the only reason why I know that is because um, I searched this door for some time and so there's a fantastic YouTube clip with Bill Fishman and Stella Rivington, who you might remember was the former head of MI5, actually standing outside the door. Bill Fishman saying, yeah, this is the door through which Stalin and Lenin and Trotsky and Litvinov and Corky all walked on that particular morning. And I find, again, that's what I love about Whitechapel, that you can touch history like that in the most, you know, unusual place. I mean, Fulton Street has a lot of history associated with it anyway, but that to me. Um, my co-author, Rachel Kosky, loves the top picture. She thinks Stalin looks absolutely gorgeous. Um, whereas Lenin does look a little bit like a ferret. Um, and of course, it became a, it became a corner shop in the end. It's, in fact, actually, I think the corner shop has even closed down since it became a corner shop, which is, you know, the Kulaks having their, uh, their uh, revenge on these two guys, starting up the road enterprise. Um, I, I said that I spent I spent five years photographing the Brady Street Cemetery. Um, I was very lucky to get into it. I approached an artist called Tom, I was a photographer. Told them I was working next door, and they took one look at me and said, well, if, if you're responsible enough to run a sixth form in Whitechapel, then here's a key, let yourself in whatever you want. Um, and it was great, because I could then do an overtime perspective. Now, I'm not a documentary photographer, I don't document things. I wanted to do landscape, and that's what the book is. And these are just a couple of stills from it. Very, this is a very unusual memorial to see a, a face on a memorial that's very unusual. It's uh, to a woman called Miriam Levy, who was, as far as we can tell, a sort of social worker in the 1820s. Very interesting. Um, I do still photograph, even though I don't work in my chapel any longer. I have a fascination with the modern, or the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, housing projects. I don't think they're photographed enough. I don't think there'll be enough documentary evidence of them in, in future times. This is actually really getting more towards Bethnal Green as the entrance to uh, This is a great building. This is a fantastic piece of 1960s architecture. This is the uh, old dental school uh, at the corner of Stepney Way and New Road. Now that building was, you know, uh, groundbreaking in its day. It was, it was a collaboration between the users and the architects, and it'd be a damn shame if they knocked that down. Particularly because I think it's a particular, I know beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but particularly beautiful building. Um, I'm also doing kind of research about, or I want to do more research about Hugh Victor Kerr, who did a lot of Art Deco buildings. He built Gwyn House, which is at the other end of Turner Street, a very distinctive building, an example of um, nautical modern. He built this, which is a Zyklone House, a factory. He built Empire House, which they're now refurbishing that goodness uh, on um, on New Road, and that's going to be great if they refurbish it back to the way it was. It's going to look absolutely fantastic. There was another building uh, in Aldgate, I think it was Commercial House, which was knocked down. A bit of a shame. But I wanted to do some, fortunately, my nephew was an architect, and I actually recently asked him if he could help me go to the research library so we can actually find out more about him as an architect. I want to say some final things, because that's your company at the end. I'm about. I want to say some final things about the sort of fragile hinterland, this idea of fragile hinterland. <coughs> of course, the biggest change that's going to happen 
2-1 chapel is the arrival of Crossrail. It's going to have a significant impact, a massive impact. I was very fortunate to be offered the opportunity to go down and see the working, which I did in 2014. This is actually the platform. This is actually one of the platform tunnels. The tunnels are unbelievable. They are unbelievable. Um, our grand, my great-grandchildren will talk about the Elizabethans, the second Elizabethans, with the same, same kind of veneration that we talk about the Victorian engineers. It's just a marvel. When, you, when it's open and people can go down to it, you'll see what I mean. It's just incredible. I mean, that's a full-sized vehicle in the distance there, you know, the kind of thing you see on a construction site. That's how big this thing is. And in fact, the tunnel is completely circular. They take out the earth at the end. It's completely circular. Amazing, amazing experience. But it is going to have a massive impact. There's, there's no doubt about the fact that it will have a big impact. And then, this is, uh, this is a bit of a... Uh, well, I'll explain why in a minute, actually. Um, um, it could be a good impact. I mean, not necessarily a negative one. But, um, this is pure whimsy on my part. This is where I get very obsessive. Um, for, for a time, they, put, they, they ripped out um, the old Victorian bridges over um, Durwood Street and Winthrop Street. Mm -hmm. um, sorry, my memory isn't as good as it. Um, next to yeah, yeah. They, they both had these Victorian arch bridges. They took them out. They took each one out in a weekend. I couldn't believe it. They turned out one weekend. <coughs> Where's that gone? Yeah. Um, but for a time, I had this contradiction, which is the underground going over the, the overground. And I spent a lot of time, a lot of time, getting the new rolling stock, because I'm obsessed with that. And also getting the um, London Transport Ramble in the future as well. It took me a lot of time. I was very worried that eventually the station master would come down and say, What are you doing here? Um, photographing this. I love the idea of the, uh, the underground going up here, which you will do, you continue to do, but that's very visual. Then, of course, this, is, <laughs> this really exposes the fragility of the area. I mean, this sign suddenly appeared. Um, I think London Transport actually owned these buildings. Or own the commercial premises, and then refurbish them. They tore off the facade, and suddenly you see Breslov and Sons, um, a shoe company. I know it was because there's some fabulous footage <coughs> of Don McLean talking about my chapel on YouTube, and he passes this and he says Breslov and there's shoes in the window. And in fact, I, um, through the Jewish East End Celebration Society, I managed to get in touch with the grandniece or granddaughter of Breslov. I wanted to try and photograph her by the building, but she down, unfortunately. Um, and it just goes to show you know, how timeless in some ways, but also how fragile the area is. It's all covered up again now. It's, it's completely gone. And then finally, this is one of my favorite photographs, actually. I, um, I was photographing on Whitechapel Waste at 7 o'clock in the morning, as one does, um, in the middle of December. Um, and this guy approached me. Now, I knew him because he's actually the older brother of a, of a, a student I was teaching at the time. Um, and so this is the I mean, take my photograph, take my photograph. And uh, I mean, I can tell you the story of the family, which is basically coming here with absolutely nothing, but through their own enterprise, building up a business, acquiring a property to live in. His brother once said to me, Mr. Burke, you can live your whole life in Bangladesh and never live in a, a brick house, ever. You know? uh, and I just love the look on his face. That he, because it's almost childlike in some ways, but also incredibly 
self-confident. And of course, I love the imagery in the background. You, know, you can actually see, you know, you can see. One of the things I like about looking down Whitechapel Waste is you see all the way to the, uh, to the Gherkin. And so you have this, you have this counterpoint between big commercial enterprise and local enterprise, but of course they're linked. You know, they're, they're actually the same thing, it's just a different scale. Um, and I suppose what we brought home to me was that there will be a lot of changes in Whitechapel. I mean, it's the, the plans I've seen when I've gone to the web, you know, Tower website, Tower are going to take over the hospital, they're going to use it as their municipal headquarters, their, their borough headquarters. There is a plan to redevelop the whole of um, uh, Old Montague Street. Uh, the designs I've seen look like something out of Canary Wharf. It has that, you know, high rise, uh, almost up and down look of buildings. Um, so it will change. It will change a lot. There'll be a lot of people coming to the area. There are a lot of people coming to the area now. I mean, I was staggered to find gastro burger bars on um, Mile End, you know, spreading out Mile End Road. Um, and, you know, we now have a coster in Whitechapel with the Starbucks. Um, but that's because Crossroad will bring that on in. However, I think the market will survive. I think the market will continue. So, thank you very much for listening to me. Um, it's been a great privilege to talk to you. Um, before I go, just say a couple of quick things, which is, my books are on sale at the back, if you want to buy one. They're also in the raffle. It's one in the raffle. Um, my e-book, my website, and um, I've just started selling my photography for my website as well. So if you're interested in the photographs, or just, you can just go look at them, you know, buy it. Uh, that's also available through my website. Thank you very much. <laughs> and my question is, of all the East End photographs you've taken, which do you consider to be your absolute favourite? Oh, sorry, all the, all the East End pictures you've taken, buildings around East End, which do you consider to be your absolute favourite? Or something that means the most to you? Um, I, su I suppose... Um, I suppose that last one I took is probably one of the ones that means the most to me. Uh, only because I actually don't really photograph people, so I don't engage with people in the street. Um, I think the work I'm proud, most proud of uh, is actually working in the, uh, working in the two Jewish cemeteries, because that is uh, you know, pretty unique work. I wanted to really point out to people that um, particularly Brady Street um, is an entire ecosystem uh, in the centre of Whitechapel um, which is a natural forest that's grown up um, and which very few people know about um, and it was under threat by Tower Hamlet who wanted to rip it apart and actually turn the place into the state unfortunately they can't do that but that, there are a number of reasons why that work is very important to me. One is the subject matter. The other is I'm very proud of the fact that I did most of it on film, which you know is not um, necessarily uh, what one uses nowadays. So that that too is quite important. That, that that work in particular, I'm very proud of. Not particularly commercial. That's the issue. With it. It's quite um, interesting because you just mentioned film. Yeah. I remember we did some filming in the East End. Do you have to get permission for photography? I know you do for film, or, or did you bother them? No, I mean, um, it's actually one of the things uh, I get to talk about this way. I actually do uh, tours of the East End with photographers. I do tours where I take, often take people around the East End as a photographer. 
and uh, explain my photographs and, and show them uh, around. In fact, I'm doing a couple of tours this, over the next month if it's interesting. Um, and uh, one thing I have to point out to people is, and I have to point this out quite often actually when I'm photographing, if I am approached by people who don't like me photographing. Um, we live in a liberal democracy. Um, there is no right to privacy in a public street in the UK. So it doesn't matter who you are or what you are, uh, if you get photographed in a public street, or indeed you can photograph a building, um, then nobody can stop you doing it. Um, even though I've had security guards come up to me and actually say, you can't take these photographs. Um, as long as you look at where the stud line is, which increasingly is, shows their boundary, you can sort of say, well, if I'm on this side, pal, I'll not take a photograph. Now, I would suggest that you don't photograph children. Yeah. Uh, that is actually yeah, about, about you, the only thing I do not photograph ever. But um, I've only had run-ins maybe once or twice with security guards. Um, but yeah, you don't need permission. I did do a book, actually it's one of the e-books, um, which was about an estate in Camden Town called Anthill. And I had to approach them because I was going on to private property, which I very, very, very rarely do. I almost never go on to private property to photograph. I mean, there are one or two cases where I have done it where I just want a particular shot. And I, I feel badly about doing it, actually. Um, but I had to approach Camden, and they gave me permission to enter this state to photograph it. But no, on the streets of Whitechapel, it's public domain, you know, as far as possible. So, so your talks then, your tours, is that to um, you know, uh, photography groups themselves? Is it sort of like photography techniques for the builders themselves, or what, what's the tours actually involved? Um, they're a bit, they are, they're a bit of uh, photographic technique. I take people to places where I've taken photographs, and I show them my photographs and explain why I took them and how I took them. I will ask people's technical questions if they have them. Um, and there's also a bit of history training because I think it's important to understand the context of what we're photographing. So they get a little bit of history from me and uh, at the same time, quite a lot of people want to photograph in East End, but they don't know where to start. You know, do you start outside Walker East? Do you start outside Whitechapel Station? Um, the tour I'm doing later this month actually is based around um, the roundels that Keith Bowler put into the pavements of Spitalfields in 1995. And I just asked Keith if it was okay to do that. He, he very kindly contributed some of his own photographs of the roundels, which no longer exist, some of them, for, for Secret Whitechapel. And I asked him if I could do a tour where I literally take him to the roundels, because of course, you stand on the roundel, and then you look around you, and there's just fantastic photographic opportunities. Yeah. So, a mixture of both of really. you. And we also have to. Sorry, I'm going to talk about Where was the, uh, the Brady Street search, you said? Where was the second one? The second Sorry, street? yes. Um, in fact, after I'd been photographing Brady Street for about a year, um, I, uh, United Synagogue then asked me if I'd go down to Alderney Road. Now, Alderney Road is, the Alderney Road Cemetery is the oldest um, Ashkenazi yeah. European Jewish cemetery um, in the UK. And in fact, some of the earliest chief rabbis are buried there. What is very interesting is that just over the wall from that is the oldest Jewish cemetery uh, in the UK, which is a Portuguese safari uh, cemetery. Um, and uh, that's in the grounds of Queen Mary College. And I was very fortunate for a secret white chapel 
um, they gave me permission to go in there and photograph it for, for the book. And that's just part of the campus now, that it, Well, the, the, there are two parts to it. There's uh, the, the Velo, which is the old one, and the Nuovo, which is the new one. I mean, they're both very old. The Nuovo, you can wander into because it is actually in the, in the open area of Queen Mary College, which you get, sorry, Queen Mary, I'm thinking back to the 19th century, it's Queen Mary University, and you can walk through to it. The Bellow is only open by uh, appointment, because it is hidden behind it. Uh, it's not much hidden, but it's behind an inaccessible wall that you have to go through. But it's a very interesting. There's not a lot to see, but some of the stabbings are really interesting. But I was just very fortunate, you know. I think the United Synagogue suddenly thought, hang on, we've got photography and they're sending down there. They want me to do other cemeteries, but I must be I don't necessarily want to become associated as a cemetery. <laughs> <laughs> Any more questions? Yep. Oh, um, the teenagers <laughs> <laughs> the teenagers you taught in, in Brady Street, how how interested are they in the architecture of the East End at that age? Um, how interested are they? Um it's like all things with kids, you know, uh, very well. Some are very interested, some are not interested at all. Funnily enough, I was approached by a group of year seven students, uh, you know, first year secondary school students, who wanted to go into the cemetery. I took them in there and they did a fantastic um, assembly. Uh, actually, they taught me a few things, which done some pretty deep internet research because they, they came out with a couple of things I wasn't even aware of, actually. And they put together a little slideshow for their assembly. In terms of the architecture, actually, I had a number of students who were aspiring architects. Um, and architecture is a very, very difficult field to get into. It's an extremely long process. I don't know if there are architects here, but you'll know it's an extremely long process. Um, and requires a great deal of dedication. So I would say not enough interest. And I think that's actually down to the school. I think schools need to do more. In fact, one of the things I've been trying to do recently is start a process of engaging with schools in Tallahassee to take the children out and do um, tours, but I haven't really had much of a reaction to be honest. Because uh, I, I do bang on quite a lot. I do about knowing about history and knowing about, in particular, British history, social history, because the East End is, is a full province you know, of, of British social history. You know. But not enough, I think. Too much exam-driven. Well, that's, that's the thing. Yeah. You know, where does it fit into the curriculum? Exactly. And if it doesn't... Forget it. Yeah. Question from Tony. Um, again, just want to say thanks a lot for tonight. It's been fascinating. <coughs> Fantastic. One of the things that's come across is the changes, even in a 10-year period, yeah, so of White Chapel. Yeah. Um, behind you, you've got a photograph of, uh, of, of your... Uh, your website on there, and it's a marvellous photograph of what I'm assuming is the Bell Foundry. Yes. Can I just ask you about that photograph? Because obviously the Bell Foundry is no longer yeah. with us. It's a brilliant photograph. Thank you. Um, actually, um, I like telling this story because my wife and I went on the tour, right? And it was such a big deal to finally get on the tour. We didn't even go away on a holiday that summer. Some holiday, <laughs> right? Because, you know, I mean, getting on the tour was very, very difficult. Um, but we did the tour, you know, it's it's funny, it's one of those things that I still think about. It was so uh, embedded itself. And of course, you can take photographs on the tour. Um, when we were doing White Chapel in 50 buildings, I approached the Hugheses who, who owned the business and asked them if I could use the photograph in the book, and they, 
they very kindly said, yes, you can do it. Please use the photograph. But uh, one of the things, again, that I loved about that tour was um, they took you into the sort of extension part in Plumbers Row, which, which is modern. You know, it's not, not, this is actually the oldest part. The, the furnaces are back here. And, of course, these bells like, have to cool for, like, you know, several days before they can actually even touch them. <coughs> they, the, the reason why the tours were on a Saturday, so you may know this, is that they couldn't take people in there during the week when the foundry is running. It's just too dangerous. So on Saturday, obviously, they closed down the foundry. Um, and uh, but you, they took you to the area where they refurbished the bells. And they're like 14th century bells. You know, you know just lying there, not lying there, they're doing work to it. And, you know, working on something that was cast by somebody, you know, six, seven hundred years ago. Absolutely mind-blowing. So, yeah, that, that, that's where the photograph comes from. I think it was the, is that the oldest business? Yeah. Yeah. Country? Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, no, in the UK. The UK, yeah. yeah. Boss, sorry, yeah. Does anybody, out of interest, can I ask a question just before we go on? Does anyone know what is going to happen to the book? Well, no, they, I mean, it's great to listen. Yeah, they can't touch it, can they? Yeah. You mentioned Toynbee Hall quite a bit. You said it's been refurbished. Yeah. I didn't realise that. So they're going to put it back to where it was, are they, more or less? Um, I don't know in detail, I'll be honest. I mean, I only had like a sort of 10 minute conversation yeah. with Tractor, who was actually a project manager. But my understanding was that in return for you know, taking the land. Obviously, obviously the Toynbee Hall Trust is going to make money out of the new bill. But apparently, part of it was to refurbish the building, to save it from the particular picture. To put it back to the uses it was before, you think? Yeah, I don't know what they're going to use it in. Uh, it used to be used quite a lot for community. Oh, yeah. It was used a lot for community oh, yeah. stuff. Now, is it still going to happen like that? I don't know. I think it's a question to ask them, actually. I'd like to let them tell them. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the, the photograph of the two guys walking down the road, you said uh, Gilbert and George or something. Uh, yes. Forgive my ignorance, I don't know who they are, what they're famous for. Contemporary uh, artists. They're artists. They're, they're quite artists. It's funny, even from your life, you know, they look yeah. like yeah. Yeah. I must admit, I thought he said Gilbert Sullivan. So I thought everybody. Like me assuming everybody knows you. Yeah. Any more questions before we say good afternoon? Any more? Yeah. Is that right? What's your definition of white chip? That's a very good question. Oh, that's a great question. Uh, so I noticed you had uh, St George's in the east. You had from St George's in the east up to. Yeah, uh, it's, too, it's probably too broad, strictly known, because I mean, I. I uh, it's kind of interesting, I was thinking about this on the way in. I photographed from Liverpool Street to Marlin, and northwards I photographed really from Columbia Circle down to the highway. Do you know Arnold Circus? Yeah. Yeah, Arnold yeah. Circus? Yeah, sorry, Arnold Circus. Yeah. Um, so, but I haven't gone further north from Arnold Circus, I haven't gone, well, I guess you reached the Thames actually, so I can't go that much further south. Um, so, when I talk about Whitechapel, I think to some extent I'm trying to stimulate interest, but of course it's more Whitechapel, it's Spitalfields, it's Stepney Green. I mean, Stepney Green is a fantastic place to photograph. Uh, one of my favourite, actually talk about favourite photographs, one of my favourite photographs 
is inside, um, say, the grid building. There's a great book, I'm sure some of you have come across it, called The Red Kiss of Stepney, about uh, philanthropic buildings. Um, Critchlow and, I can't remember the, the name of the other, Colin Critchlow. You can't get it now, I had to get mine from Nate's books, you know, two years to get hold of copy. But they talk about the Red Kiss of Stepney, these red buildings, philanthropic buildings. And uh, so Stepney Green, um, so my definition of Whitechapel is actually quite broad. It's probably broader than Whitechapel. Um, but then there is so much to the world. Anyone? Great. Well, once again, I've really enjoyed this night. It's been absolutely fantastic. I knew it would be because you know, I've got your book and I expect Ruby's bought a few more. Yeah, I thought perhaps you would get my money. Yeah, <laughs> So, of course, can you put your hands together because it's been fantastic. <laughs>was Louis Burke at the June 2018 meeting of the Whitechapel Society. I'd like to thank Mr. Burke, Steve Ratty, Ruby Vitorino, Frog Moody, and all of the members of the committee of the Whitechapel Society for making the release of this excellent presentation possible. Again, please visit Louis's website at louisburke.com to explore more of his excellent photographs. If you'd like more information about the Whitechapel Society, to become a member, purchase books, subscribe to the Whitechapel Society Journal, or look at upcoming speakers and events, please visit whitechapelsociety.com. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by casebook.org, where you will find over 100 roundtable discussions, author interviews, and conference presentations, all about Jack the Ripper, East End history, and Victorian and Edwardian crime. If you have any questions or comments about any of our podcast releases, you can contact us on the Casebook message boards or find us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for RipperCast. I would like to thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time.